Welcome to the New Books Network. We are on. We are on. Hello to Katie House. Hello. So great to be here. It's so great to have you here. It's spectacular. It's wonderful. <laughs> and I'm in the uh, suburbs of Tel Aviv, and you're in the distant suburbs of Philadelphia. Yes. A little bit of space between us, but also a just, lot of warmth and happiness between us. So that's all it's, good. It's just like we're a yard apart or a meter. That's right. <laughs> Wonderful to have you on the show. So well, um, I'm I, I here. I'm Mel Rosenberg, in case I, I forget who I am. And I am the, what am I? I am the, um, <laughs> okay, I keep forgetting. I'm the founder and host of the Children's Literature Channel, the New Books Network. That's what I am. That sounds good. And I'm here with spectacular picture book author, Katie House. Katie, so we're here, welcome to the show, and we're here to celebrate your new book, which just launched about two months ago. And Thank amazingly, you for this to do that. Yes, and amazingly, you have the book to show the people who are watching on the video. And for the people who um, are listening on the podcast, Woven of the World is a spectacular book. Um, and it's so beautiful. Uh, well, talk. Why should I talk about it? You talk about it. <laughs> well, I can talk about it a little bit. It is beautiful. And if you are just listening instead of watching, then I'm sorry that you're just listening instead of watching. No, run out, run out um, and buy the book. Go and find it. Um, Although right now the publisher has run out of it, Chronicle Publisher has it, and they are on a reprint already. It sold much faster than they expected. So wonderfully, I was, I was it's being reprinted. Them, I was going to ask. It'll be back that. in the stores in a week or two by midnight. I, I, I wanted to buy the book, and it said it sold out, and I said that's impossible. It was sold out, and they actually um, just. They ordered the reprint as fast as they could when they saw the numbers dwindling, but they wanted to redo the jacket. This is something that's never happened to me. They wanted to redo the jacket to put the four starred reviews we had gotten onto the jacket and then like squish everything else a little smaller and tighter. Um, so I've never had like somebody send me a, a link to like jacket art and been, been so excited and so happy about being like, yes, I am okay with that. That is wonderful. Yes, please do that. Um, but yeah, it should be back um, restocked up in stores in two weeks time. So we're very happy about that. But I mean, it's just, I could not feel happier about being paired with this artist for this book. Um, when the editor, Ariel Richardson at Chronicle, got the manuscript from me about weaving and about it being weaving around the world and fiber arts through history and time, she immediately knew who she wanted to have illustrated. And it was Dinara Mirtilipova, um, who is a folk artist of her own, um, just She's she's incredible. Um, and she had been talking for a while with her team at Chronicle about doing a picture book about shared fiber arts through family generations, because it was something she grew up with um, in Uzbekistan when she was younger. And they do something called Suzani, which is like an embroidery fiber art. And she had wanted to do a picture book about something like that. And so this really spoke to her and her history and her background as a folk artist. Um, and we both had to do a ton of research to make sure that everything we represented in it was accurate and was respectful. But it was like the dream team to be working together on it. It made me so happy. And I never would have known it could have happened. It was fabulous. Hold on. You can, you're an incredible woman. You, you, you probably can multitask. 
Um, Sometimes. <laughs> so, so, so while you're talking, why don't you show a few of the beautiful spreads to the people who are oh, watching? Sure. So um, let me get some pages open. So here we just sort of have the opening spread here. And um, so when you can, I wrote you, you can, it, I you knew can it even, to... You can read it while you're showing the page. Sure. So when I started writing it, I knew I wanted it to be in rhyme. And when I do a poem, like I can't get any further on it till I know what the meter is going to be. And I have to like feel the meter like really deeply inside me. So I actually went to a weaving studio to a store um, in Frenchtown, New Jersey called The Spinnery. And they let me sit and listen to them weave on a great big loom while they just did the work. They also showed me tons of books they had about the history of weaving, and they were so good to me there. But listening to the loom was what helped me find the meter for this and find sort of the heart of it. And so it actually starts and ends the book. Clack, clack, swish, pull back, bobbin and heddle, foot pedal, no slack. And it just all matched with the rhythm of the loom as she was working there. Um, I do it a little slower when I read it aloud than she does when she's weaving something on a loom because she's a pro professional but um Dinara really you're just on, you're, captured you're on, the art beautifully and she made it all in really her specialty style and so there's little details throughout that like remind her of her youth and her family um and it's fabulous and then we go through a history of various and sundry different vignettes of places and times in history where there were weaving milestones or weaving traditions. And honestly, I researched for, I don't know how long, at least a year and a half, various and sundry places and times where weaving was a big and important thing. Katie, and it was really hard to narrow read, it down. Read some more, please. Sure. So this says, it sings of flax and fibers spun by fingers deft and proud, threads destined for a dancer's robes or for a pharaoh's shroud. So we're talking about the Egyptian weaving tradition. It sings a city packed with looms, a wonder to behold, of cloaks and rugs for warmth and prayer in colors rich and bold. And so there we're representing the Iberian Peninsula at a time when it was a weaving center for the world. Um, a song of stalwart travelers who call each new place home of nomads with a loom to string, no matter where they roam. And we did so much research to make sure that we were handling this part as well, getting all of the fabrics correct, but not copying someone's tapestry exactly or their weaving exactly, because sometimes there's so much just personal, but also spiritual or traditional information and importance in a weaving. And so you don't want to steal that and represent it necessarily, but you want to show it. So we were trying to balance that out really well. Um, and then this one, this is one of my favorite spreads, and I'm going to show it up close here. This shows um, a robe that was made for a bride in the ikat, ikat, people say the word differently, I-K-A-T tradition, which takes the fabrics and they have to be wrapped with cotton strings and dipped into dyes so that parts of it are dyed and parts of it are left undyed. Um, and there's beautiful patterns and creations that come from it. And it was something that was from Dinara's traditions as a child and something she remembered. So I hadn't originally written 
um, a stanza about that. But as soon as she said, could we get that in the book? I was like, yes, we will get that in the book. So um, it says, it sings of bundled threads on frames, each wrapped and dipped and dyed, meticulously matched and draped to dress a beaming bride. And one of the favorite parts of the book for the kids is there's a little cat who Denara has drawn on almost every spread. Um, he's obviously hanging out with the elder and the youth, the child and the maybe grandmother who are doing the weaving throughout. And there's no words about a cat anywhere in it. But the minute she started drawing balls of yarn, she started thinking about cats playing with them. And so the cat is in the book. And it's wonderful when we do read alouds with this at a library. Um, or at a school, because even the very young kids who might not understand all the content or connect as well to it, I'll tell them to look for the cat in every spread. So this one here has many images of the cat tangled up in the yarn, playing with the yarn balls and things like that. And then we'll tell the kids, you know, don't shout out cat because you're going to interrupt the story. Just show me that you're petting a cat when you see it in the spread and they get so attentive, they pay so much like concentration on looking for the cat in each spread and noticing what he's up to and showing me that they've seen the cat so I can smile and nod at them and give them the thumbs up that they did a good job. And it really helps them concentrate. So I love that about it. Um, and this is another one of my very favorite spreads, not just because the cat is playing with all the yarn, um, but also we're representing the Salish American Indian group um, and the way that they would weave and how there is spirituality in everything that they would weave in, weave in their tradition. And so it says of honor sung in pattern, story told in shape and line, color chosen with intention, spirit sewn in each design. And we did make sure to get all of this, you know, double checked by people who were connected to the traditions and understood them so that we weren't stepping on any toes, appropriating anything or like overstepping and saying it. Because I know there's people who might feel like saying that their spirit sewn in each design is maybe being exaggerated about it. But the weavers who truly understood the Salish tradition said, no, everything we weave, we put spirit into, it's there. So you need to say that about it. It's important. Um, and it was wonderful to be able to have that level of feedback um, and to be able to sort of shape it around that. It was it was so much fun making this. So yes. this is right at the end here. And you can really see Dinara's traditional um, folk art styling and everything. And so it's just been it's been wondrous getting to share this with the world because I never knew. I really thought when I first wrote it, it would be very small. It's a little quiet. It's a little niche. Um, like it's not the most typical or the most commercial of the books or stories that are out there. And yet it seems to connect really strongly with a lot of people mm -hmm. in a lot of places. And that means so much to me. It's wonderful. Well, you're the first author I've spoken to who sold out in two months. So <laughs> It, it, it is a beautiful book. Um, so, in addition to being in awe of the uh, of the gorgeous artwork, um, there's something special about your poetry, um, and that is not only the meticulous attention to the rhyme and the, and the meter, but also one of the one of the problems of rhyming, which is um, what we, why we tell our students not to, is uh, the searching for words that are not necessarily in perfect context yeah um you know like you're writing a book about um eating chocolate and all of a sudden you need something that rhymes with a hamel and you put in a camel 
Um, so, so what? Yes. Not the best example, but people. No, but it's very that. easy to let the rhyme drive the story once you start rhyming instead of letting the right. story. And then, of course, you have, to write, you have to write about the. You go the, off in a totally yeah, different to, direction. You have to go off on a caravansary with the camel because you put yes. the camel in because it rhymes. And now your chocolate has melted because you're out in the Hamel, Hamel and mammal. <laughs> right. And you say, oh, okay. Um, <laughs> back I to hear you. I've been down that road. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but, but you do you do it so 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 well. Um, so, are you a weaver? Are you a loomer? I did not start out that way. So when I started imagining this book, it was because we were in a wonderful neighborhood where my kids grew up, um, where we had people from a lot of different areas, a lot of different cultures, and we tended to bring things together um, from our different cultures and celebrate things together. And my kids were actually unhappy with sort of the metaphor that there's a melting pot in America, because they're like, when you melt everything, like it's all just like the same and boring and we're not the same and boring. We bring it all together and it's awesome because there are the different things and they're all beautiful and we appreciate them all. So what is the metaphor? So we went searching for one um, and we found weaving and tapestries and how many different yarns come together um, and how that is beautiful and warm and strong and fabulous. Um, yeah. And so I got this line in my head of a child saying, I am a tapestry woven of the world. And I'm like, I have to do something with that because I can't shake that line. And that's mm -hmm. when I started researching weaving and tapestries. Um, if, and if, actually, you were, if, if you were my age, Katie, you'd have a Carol King's song on your mind. I don't tapestry. think I know which Tap one it is. Well, tapestry. tapestry, but yeah, oh. but, uh, but you're not my age, so it's fine. Uh, <laughs> I'm getting close. I'm trying. <laughs> I'm trying my, to grow up every day. I'm not getting there yet. <laughs> well, someday you will be my age. Uh, I don't want to think where I'll be at that time, but um, my life has been a tapestry, so um, you have a little bit of homework. <laughs> I um, do. And honestly, I mean, I can't say that I was the one who came up with this either. We found a quote from Maya Angelou about how diversity was a tapestry. And that was what started us looking into that. It was like, oh, somebody figured this out for us. Yes. Thank you. Like I, I, Another thing I really like about you is that um, you, you, um, you fly in the face of convention. <laughs> that I do. And it's yeah, really stubborn of me. And I don't know yes. why. Shame, shame on you. And and people and, and the naysayers will say, oh, but where's the own voices here? You're talking about all kinds of cultures that you are not part of. But so what? You've come up with a miraculous book about so many different cultures. You can't be part of all of them. I was very scared about that and very, not necessarily scared about how it would affect us, but scared about doing it wrong. Because I do think it's very important that we elevate voices of many different cultures and backgrounds and let them tell their own stories. It's hugely important. And at the same time, this is like, it's like nonfiction. You know, sometimes you have to look at the things that are, that exist in the world and bring them out into the light. And as long as you are doing your research and being respectful, and that was one of the great things about working with Chronicle was that they had such great resources and such like an understanding that that was important to me from the beginning. Like we didn't sign the contract till I had a good conversation with the editor to make sure that was going to happen, that we were going to have people look at it, that we were going to 
And we changed lots of things over time, especially in the back matter to make sure we were being accurate and respectful and that we weren't appropriating anything, but that we were highlighting things. And so I feel like it is a bit of a risk and I'm generally a risk averse person until I get stuck on an idea and I can't shake it. And then I just go all in. That's that's what every risk taking person says. (laughs) There's a lot um, of risks but, I won't take, no, but sometimes well, well, there's just a book that has well, to go. It has to go. One of, the, one, of the, one of the things you alluded to is is that it was published by Chronicle, which has the resources, and and the book is 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 big and it's 44 pages and it hasn't skimped on anything, nothing no. at all, uh, not the research and the artwork and and the craft and and you, um, you also have books with small publishers. I, you know, well work with the best place for my book, but also I'm still establishing myself in this business. Getting into a big publisher isn't something I had gotten to yet. So yeah, my first book came with a very small publisher, Replica okay. Press. Okay, and- stop. hold on, hold on, hold on. So now we're going to segue back to little Katie <laughs> and, uh, and, and tell us about your life. And, and uh, because you are, uh, we talked about this before the show. Yeah. You are a an incredibly successful author who doesn't really acknowledge it yet, but trust me. <laughs> trust me All right, you, you got me you on are. that. I don't know about incredibly successful, but things are going better than I ever expected. Yeah. And I am getting recognition that I didn't even know existed sometimes. And there, you there go. are okay. huge ups and downs in this business. There are, but I'm finally at the point where I feel like I am an author, I am a poet, and I can say it out loud yeah. and not feel weird about it. Well, I feel a little weird. Not, about not, it. not, not, not like it, less than an imposter. But yeah, but, I but mean, you, you talked about ups and downs, but you see for 99 point something percent of authors, there's only downs. They, they never, well, the downs they never... don't stop. You just, <laughs> like, no, even I, when you get the ups, you still are getting course. the nose all the time. So <laughs> Of course, but you you are one of the, uh, I talked about this with, with Stephen uh, Fraser last week. Um, y- y- you know, to, to, to get a, a, a book published by a small or major traditional publisher, it's like one in 5,000 manuscripts. And even if it's one in 3,000, the chances are very small. So now before you answer me, I want to segue back to baby Katie. Baby tell, Katie. Us a little, tell us a little bit about your life and why you became a picture book writer? Well, that's a great question. I wish I knew the answer. Um, So baby Katie grew up in Detroit, Michigan. My dad's a police officer. My mother did everything she needed to do to keep us moving. So she often worked in our schools and things like that. Um, And I loved books as a kid. I do school visits now and talk to the kids about how, you know, books were my escape. Books were my safety. Books were where I could take my imagination. Um, And I did a lot of reading, but I never thought about, and I did a lot of writing. Like I was making poetry books with my friend Rajan starting in like third grade. Um, But I never thought about being an author because I had this idea in my head that authors like lived in England and they had a typewriter (laughs) and maybe like a little tower or a garret or something like that, that they read in and worked in. I I don't know where I was coming from, but like I wasn't meeting authors, you know, the people that I knew were blue collar down to earth people and they didn't think about that stuff as a career and 
so like I have a little book that I made in I think fourth grade that I had to make for class about you know what are you going to be when you grow up and what are you like now and I was like oh I'll either be a police officer like my dad or a teacher like all the teachers I know or I'll be the interior designer for the first hotel on the moon and I tell kids now that I could still do that because you know we can change careers often so the the moon hotel is still waiting for me um but you know I got very good at math and science I love math and science. I'm a super math and science geek and it makes me very happy. And I went to a math and science um, magnet school in high school. I mean, I was doing surgery on rats as my science project, sophomore year of high school. So I did some stuff and I had an electron microscope at my high school. I was super, super geeky. I loved it. And I got the decision that I should be doing a science career. And that made a lot of sense to me as a person who loves science, certainly, but also as a person who is from a very practical background, right? You want to get a job that you're going to have a job and you're going to be in demand and you're going to have the money. And no one ever told me that you could do that as an author. And even now, I know you can't necessarily do that as an author. I certainly can't right now. Um, there are people who manage to make it their work. And it's, you know, there's a lot of pieces to that. But I studied to become a physical therapist. I got my master's degree in PT. I love doing neuroscience. I spent over a decade working either with children or in brain injury rehab because I like it complicated. Um, <laughs> and also because it was always a team in that rehab setting. Like it was a PT, an occupational therapist, a speech therapist, nurses, doctors, cognitive therapists. And I love working as a collaborative team on a project. Who knew that I was going to end up working on like a collaborative team on projects like this. Like it's one of the best things about picture books. I mean, I do hope to write chapter book middle grade. There's things I've worked on that haven't made it into the, you know, past the, past all the people at the publishers and get bought up and get made, but we'll get there. We'll get there sooner or later. But I love the collaborative effort of a picture book probably more than I ever imagined I would. Okay, hold and on I a second. I always figured I'd write something someday. Like when I retired, Mm -hmm. um, maybe I do a memoir or something for grownups. And then I had kids and I had three kids under the age of five and sending them to daycare was more expensive than my job was bringing in. And it was just really practical to stay home with them for a bit. And I started feeling exhausted, chasing them around. And I would just start telling them stories to get them to sit for a little bit, or at least stay nearby. Um, yeah. And I started a blog so that I had a sense of accountability for myself, like something that was me and that I was going to do every week that was for me. And at first it was just about parenting stuff. And then my wonderful husband who loves statistics and numbers looked at my numbers on my blog a lot. And he'd like, anytime you talk about raising kids who like to read, your numbers go way up. So do more of that. So I started like hashtag raising readers and I would interview authors that I could get a hold of nearby. Uh, I think Tara Lazar was the first one who would like get on my blog and talk with me about things because she had one that was raising kids who love to read, yeah, um, she's, which she's was perfect. She's it was lovely. exactly what I was looking for. Tara's um, lovely. I got some teachers and some librarians and things like that to give advice on that. And all of these people, as I got to know them, started saying to me, Katie, why aren't you trying to write a book? It's like oh, I could do that. And um, yeah, things kind of got off, got off track of physical therapy and into writing books. I thought I'd just do one and get it out of my system. And it took on a life of its own. And I love it. I love 
that my kids got to watch me transition from one career to another. And they saw that it was a struggle, but that I was passionate about it and that I loved it. And that I was going to work that hard and that I was going to cry sometimes because I was going to get no's and I was going to keep trying. Like having kids watch you do that, especially for this generation where I know they're going to have to change careers. Like things move so fast right now and things shift that as a grown up, you don't have to be doing what you thought you were going to do at 15. You have options. Um, I think it's a good thing for them. And it was fantastic for me. So, okay. But as, as, as a beginning, yeah, of course. And, and you should for at least, at least a decade. Yeah. So until I started you, writing. Until, this until is actually you, 10 years until, since until, I said, until, maybe I'll write a book. So yeah, until, I'm until, right until, at that until, point now. No, 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 you're not. Give it another 10. Um, and then you, <laughs> yeah. you might become an interior designer for the moon. For the moon. Um, and and uh, you're a kindred soul because, um, I change careers every 10 years or so. And um, it turns out that, and I know that I read a book about it when I was younger, before you were born. And I could never find it. And ChatGPT found the book for me. And it's Alvin Toffler's book from the early 70s called Future Shock. And he okay. says there that in the future, people are going to have to change careers every 10 years because the world is going to change because so rapidly. the world will change. Yeah. And he said, that, he said that 52 years ago. So uh, what I'm interested in is um, you could have started out in middle grade or young adult, and you chose to start out in picture book. Um, are you like some of the other people I've interviewed and like me stuck at the age of five? Are you writing to your five-year-old? I might be stuck at the age of five, but I actually didn't try to start at picture book. I was trying to do chapter books. Honestly, one of the first things I was trying to do was this one, Magnolia Mud. That mm -hmm. is a picture book that was with Sterling. It came out in 2018, was originally a chapter book, and I was hoping it would be a series. And when my agent sent that out, we had several different editors at different houses say, this would be, this is good as a chapter book, but we need something like this that is a female who loves science and is proud of that and is not like nerdy because there's so much within pop culture at the time of the the girl who likes science was like a stereotype only a certain presentation they're like we need that younger because even very young kids are learning very fast that oh boys do science and girls don't and stuff like that so we switched it down to picture book level and that's really when I started digging deeper into learning more and more about how to do a picture book how did you how did you I find an agent how, how did you break in um, so the first book that I did, Grandmother Thorn, oh, leaning back to pull it off the shelf, um, was with Ripple Grove Press. And that was something that like when I was first learning about the world of children's books and first going to SCBWI conferences and things like that, honestly, like I just had this idea in my head that I needed this story about letting go of control and not trying to have everything perfect because I was at that point in my life. And I submitted that to lots of agents, probably way sooner than I should have. And I was also sending it out to publishing houses, especially small ones at the same time, which was a really dumb thing to do because I clearly didn't know enough about how the system worked. Um, I was really rushing into things. But at the same time that Ripple Grove Press told me they wanted to make that story. Um, my agent, my current agent, Essie White, told me that she would like to represent that story. Um, and I actually found her through, I think this was in the days before that was all these Twitter things where you post your pitch on Twitter. It was more of like a blog where you would post a pitch. 
um, and agents would come in and comment on it and let you know if they wanted to see more. And she didn't comment on mine because I think it was Magnolia Mud that was up on there, but she commented on several others that had similar themes to the grandmother Thorne story I was writing. And I felt like she had a really good liking for and grasp for things that were a little quieter, um, that were a little more emotive. And so I sent it to her and said, you know, I saw that you liked these ones and I think you would like this as well. And so we connected over that. Um, and we've been together ever since. Oh my goodness. And I love her. She's fantastic. Um, I think she took a chance on me. She knew from the start that I was new to this and I wasn't sure how the business worked, but that I was really passionate and I was ready to learn quickly. Um, and it's been fantastic being teamed up with her. It's been really a gift. Um, let's, let's, it is wonderful. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know now whether I want to talk more about being a maker or risky, yeah. no, ki or risky no kisses. Um, I never one. know which one I want to talk about more either. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to let you both, And they're both with Carol Rhoda, which is an imprint of Learner Books. And I love that Learner does a lot with the schools and the libraries. They're really connected to the readers at that level, to the teachers, to the librarians and everyone. And that really helps them steer things. And that makes me happy because I want... This is who I am. I want my books to be useful when at all possible. I mean, sometimes useful is just being able to laugh, right, with your kids and have a good time with it. But sometimes there's more to that as well. And I always like to hit things on multiple levels. That's just how my brain works. Um, so let me talk, Rissy, just because I think it's really important to talk about this one. This is a lovebird who doesn't like kisses. And the whole idea for me was that I do have... Um, family members, as well as clients I've worked with in the past in a more, you know, professional way, who don't socialize the ways that we think of as normal, who don't process sensory information the ways we think of as typical, and who maybe don't want to be hugged or kissed or touched, but do still show love. And their ways of showing love are just as legitimate. And I feel like as a society, we have to start young saying your body is yours and how you feel about it is okay is right because it's your body like nobody gets to tell you that you have to kiss that you have to hug that you have to show love in certain ways um and you aren't wrong for not liking that and so i wanted a book about that that was very much i don't know that could very much speak to the young kids but that grown-ups who are reading it with them like the grandparents or whoever is reading it with them is also getting that message of oh yeah that actually makes a lot of sense and so um i was very lucky to have the editor at learner who had done be a maker with me excited about that idea too and so we kind of workshopped the idea together again collaboratively and made sure that like the character was really cute so that it wasn't an intimidating book. It's a book that kids want to page through again and again and look at the pictures because I think it's a kind of message that you need to hear a few times to soak it up. So we needed to make sure that it was going to be read well, and reread. Katie, don't put it back. I love it. Don't put it, it back. Come on show, down, Rissy. And and the, show us some of the uh, the artwork. Oh, sure. So the artist Jess Engel is wonderful, um, and she does just a beautiful use of white space and so much ability to give emotion uh, and, and on a read bird. It, read, read, and read let me page. read some. Sure. I, I so love let me get to the very beginning here. So throughout yeah. the book, Rissy 
doesn't like kisses, um, even though all the other lovebirds use that to show love. And each time she speaks up for herself, which is the right thing to do, people assume there's something wrong. And they say that out loud, just like we might, like if your kid who usually likes hugs suddenly doesn't want to hug, you might be like, you know, are you hurt? Are you sick? Is something wrong? So that happens to her until she feels like an outsider. So again, we're in rhyme. Um, and that was intentional. We wanted it to feel very rhythmic for kids. And we wanted them to be able to predict what might get said next because kids participating in a book, like when they guess what's going to be said next because of the rhyme, it helps them connect to the book and remember the book. And that helps deliver a message that they stick with. So yeah, um, here we go. Oh, the nestlings are just darling, cooed Miss Bluebird over tea. I can see that they like tickles, they like treats, and they like me. Now I wonder if this little one would kiss me on the cheek. No kisses, Rissy chirruped with a most emphatic squeak. And that's sort of our repetition throughout. And it says, how surprising, squawked Miss Bluebird. Then she laughed as if amused. We know lovebirds all love kisses. I think Rissy is confused. And that's sort of our first entry to, you know, she's not kissing, there must be a reason. And it escalates where people think maybe she's sick. Maybe yeah, she's well, being rude. Maybe she's being mean. Um, right down to the grandma saying, you should teach that girl some manners. Grandma Lovebird briskly cooed. We know lovebirds all love kisses. I think Rissy's being rude. And having someone as close to you as your grandma say that, it seems like a little intense. And that's honestly one of the reasons we wanted it super cute because these are intense feelings. And a lot of us have had those. We've had those moments where someone we care about judges something we're doing and it hurts. Um, so then Rissy comes along to her mom and says, am I mean mom? Rissy wondered or confused or rude or sick. Are you certain I'm a lovebird? Are you sure that I'm your chick? Kissies make my tummy icky. I feel worried, weird, and wrong. If I can't show love with kissies, then I'll never quite belong. And look at all the emotion that Jess managed to put on the face of a little gumdrop-shaped lovebird. She did an amazing job. But we are just acknowledging there that for some people, the feeling they have in their body with certain forms of relations, like a hug, a snuggle, whatever, actually feels really bad for them. And kids understand that. When I read this with groups, kids 100% have been there. They've felt it. And they've felt like an outsider, like they don't belong because of that. So being able to share that and then have the mothers give her this positive message. And I know we say in picture books, we want the main character to be the one who solves the problem. But there are also situations where she's been trying to solve the problem all along. She's been communicating. She needs someone to help her through that. And for young kids, it's important to hear that from authority figures that they can help you. So for this one, we said, oh my Rissy, said her mother, there's nothing wrong with you. Well, it's true you don't like kisses. You're a lovebird through and through. Your body and your heart are yours and you choose how to share. You get to pick the ways you want to show us that you care. 
And so she does, she shows them different ways that she cares and you can see them throughout the book. Like she makes um, cookies out of worms. I mean, I didn't come up with that idea, just did. And it's fabulous where she has her little worm cookies and her little cards she makes to show that she loves and she's cuddling and she's singing with friends. And so if you look back, you see she's been doing it all along. She's been showing all these things to her family and friends all along and they just didn't notice them because it wasn't what they expected as love. And we get such great conversations with kids about this. So it's it's meant a lot to me to be able to have that out there in the world. And it got good reception. And I think it was in part because there were a number of books from different publishers and authors that came out at the same time with messages about this, about autonomy and consent, because it's really important that we talk about it now. So I'm really like, I'm really proud of that just because it did seem like, is this going to work? I don't mm-hmm. know a lot of books like this. I looked wow. for books like this and couldn't find them. So it filled a space and it did it in a timely fashion and hooray. <laughs> so, so, so Katie, you, you fly in the face of convention in so many ways. <laughs> I, I, I don't know where to begin. I don't uh, think I do. I feel like a very conventional human, but okay. Thank you. <laughs> no, but maybe by being, no, but you might be a very conventional human, but, but you know, we, we teach ourselves and other people not to rhyme and you're you're a boy i didn't know any better i keep saying like grandmother thorne has on the cover i mean it's an old woman's face yeah it's a story about an old lady in her garden if i had known enough at the time about what we say about publishing you know we want the main character to be relatable to the kids and things like that she is like when i talk with her talk about her with classes and schools the kids get it there's things in their lives that they control that they like to have just their way so, 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 it's hard to let go of so i i don't know any yeah. of the rules like uh, i rhymed before i realized that you weren't supposed to be doing that like but, so but, yeah but, but, maybe but i'm not, just not, really good not, at missing not, the missing the yeah. like rules well, right um, maybe <laughs> no maybe because you miss the rules then you get them um so we teach we teach uh, aspiring writers not to rhyme uh, unless they're julia donaldson or a or or they know how to write or they're a musician. Then, it's so hard then, to do rhyme yeah. well. Then we <sighs> then we teach the, the 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 main characters like the hero's journey have to be the ones that figure it out themselves. Mm-hmm. And then Risty No Kisses the mother steps in, and then um, most in most instance, instances the author and the illustrator do not have the relationship that you have in the process. Um, well, I'm and not I, always I, allowed I, to, but yeah. But but I, I I can I can infer that you have. <laughs> um, I try to do some back and forth. I don't want to direct an illustrator. Most of them know way more than I do about not just about the art, but about how the art of a picture book carries the story. But I do like to pay attention to the details. Well, that's the, that's 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 the whole. I can yeah. I, the, we can tell as you're describing it that um, you have an intense association with the artwork. And 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 that's it, it's fabulous if you ask me. Um, a, you have a, books that are heavy on message. We teach our students to be heavy on um, you know on the story and have the message in the background. But in Risty No Kisses, Kisses, the message is out there. In Be a Maker, the message is out there. Uh, Woven of the World is certainly nonfiction. So. Uh, <laughs> Um, and I wasn't and, really sure it was nonfiction when I wrote it, but you know these things. Happen. And no, and, and I, th- I think it's fantastic because um, it, it just goes to show what people say but don't mean, which is break the rules. But, but when, you know, when when a, when an agent 
or an editor says, show me something different. Show me something I don't anticipate. But I don't think they really mean it. I mean, maybe they mean it, but that's not really what they're asking. Well, and I got to tell you, I break the rules on other ways and I hear, no, we can't make this. I mean, you have to be ready for no when it's going to be different. And sometimes I try things that I think are going to be very popular commercially and I match them up with mentor texts that I think they're great compliments to and those don't go anywhere either so so like you, you don't really know but you have to care about it and you have to pay attention to multiple levels like I feel like there are very few successful books and maybe there's books that sell really fast but not the ones that you'll remember your whole life kind of books that don't have multiple levels to them and I just like levels. Like I like things to have a little more. And so there's something for the very youngest readers. There's something for the adults. There's something that you don't think about the first time through, but it comes to you like more important to you later. And some of that I don't bring to it. The illustrators bring to it, the editor and the art director bring it. Um, And some of it, the reader brings it. I wouldn't even think about it being part of the book. And then they tell me what they thought about what they read. And it's just like, yes. So between I guess it's just a matter of bringing layers and leaving space. And that is really hard to do all at once, but yeah, I think we and, should do and, it. And, we should and, look and, to do it. We should try to do that. And rhyming on top of it all. Oh my goodness. Oh <laughs> That's because I'm stubborn. Um, it's but also because I'm mathematical. You know what? Like I like math and science. I like rules. And when you have the meter and the rhyme, it puts some rules on things. It puts some structure in and that directs me because I am on paper a really wordy person in general, but poetry doesn't let you do that as much. It reigns you in. It so, makes you focus. And sometimes so I need the, the, to- This, is, this is a self-imposed. Yeah. The, a, a self-imposed, you're a prisoner of poetry. I love it. And then I make a spreadsheet about it with like highlighted rows for where the emphasis should fall on the right syllable. Yeah. And yes, no, I come like on. do you? Yes, I absolutely make spreadsheets to check where the emphasis is and if it lines up correctly and how to analyze it. Yes. Um, and I have like right here, right behind me where I can reach it every time I have the poetic meter check sheet from Renee Latulipe's classes about it um, because I have to double check the names of things. Sometimes I can't remember what iambic is versus um, a different name for a meter, but I know exactly what the rules are and how it should lay down. And I'll double check. I, 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 iambic is the opposite of you are big. I, I, I never know myself. <laughs> I, I can, I can pick out the common, uh, the common the, the tetrameter. That, that's about it. Um, but um, what, so what are your other suggestions? I don't for, know if I've ever interviewed, books, your suggestions, I've ever, you better if I've care. ever interviewed someone who is so successful uh, doing things differently. What else do you do well, differently? I think part you of it get- is being willing to be wrong and knowing who can tell you that, like who you trust. So having an agent who sometimes I push back against, she says, this is not going to go well. You shouldn't do this. And sometimes I push back and sometimes I say, why? Give me some reasons. And she does. And I go, yeah, I trust you. Like you're, you're right. I tried it. You're right. It's not going to work. It's not going to fly whatever. I'm going to move on. I have critique partners who are amazing humans, who are amazing writers and who understand things and are willing to tell me when I'm going in a terrible direction. And sometimes I flout them and sometimes I don't, but like having people who you trust their opinions and you build that trust over time, 
I wish there was a quick answer. Like there's no quick. You find people whose opinions you trust and who matter and who will be truthful with you about whether you're taking a good risk or a really stupid risk or a risk people have tried before and it didn't work. And there was a good reason it didn't work. Like not, it just hit the market at the wrong time, but there was a good reason. Having those people in your writing life is so important. Is, is Essie going to confirm this? Let's get, let's get her on the show. (laughs) <laughs> that I tell her that I want to do things anyway, and then tell, I sometimes tell, back down tell, when she's right. I, I, I've had. Some, I don't back some, down enough when she's right. I give her, and she is very sweet. Ask, she will send ask, things ask, out on ask, sub. Ask, ask her if she's willing to be on the show. I want to confirm this. <laughs> I will ask her. <laughs> I, I, I'd love to. Uh, I'd love to interview her. Um, she's a fabulous so what, human. What, what? What? What other? Um, and you know, when, when I, I read about you and I, I looked at the, most of your books, and um, I should mention that you have the, the poem grows within you and you have uh, books coming out the next year and the year after. Um, it's pretty exciting. It's extremely exciting. And, and, it's and very exciting. Su- and you're such a nonconformist among writers uh, doing things your way. Um, it's, 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 well, it's, ex- it's exceptional. Uh, what advice do you have to authors who don't have your privilege, okay, who aren't at the stage where they have a book coming out with a traditional publisher, an agent, uh, can they flaunt the rules? Can they be non-conventional? Can they be unorthodox? Sometimes they can. I mean, I... I can't say I'm an expert on the publishing industry, you know? Um, I think you are. So I'll say it. Because I'm still learning about relationships and awards. I think relationships matter. I think it is worth it to show up at things like conferences and retreats if you can afford to. And I know that that's expensive. There are some good scholarships for that in places. But if you can't, then for webinars, for things that are less expensive, or just to find a critique group near you and to build relationships, because you'll be amazed at where suddenly somebody says, oh, did you know that this publisher is suddenly looking for this or has an open call right now for these things? And getting your foot in the door matters. I think that if you can get something in a magazine, I really wish I had spent more energy on that sort of thing, because at least you have something where you can say, you know, I've already had a, two poems published in this or that. It it helps to build some legitimacy. I mean, I would say my first book didn't sell a lot of copies, but it gave me some legitimacy because it did get some recognition. And even though it wasn't a financial huge success or anything, most books aren't, um, it it got my foot in the door um, and that was very helpful. And I think when you can build relationships where you actually have some honest conversation with people who are agents and you're not just trying to like knock down their door and be like, I'm talking to you because I want you to rep me, but you're learning from them and learning about the business and learning about the opportunities with agents, with editors. I think it makes a big difference um, because you get the bigger picture. Um, The other thing I guess I would say is that most agents and some editors won't just want to see one work from people. So you need to show that you have some range. And some of that's just to prove that you have range, that you're not just one little niche. But it's also that timing is so weird in publishing. Like if you have a book that's a rule breaker, they might love it, but they might feel like it's not the right moment for it. But they see that you also have a book that, you know has STEM 
themes in it that are really important right now. Or they see that you can also write something that's got some humor in it that they really could use on their list right now. They see the range, but they also see the opportunity. And so the more opportunity you give them, like the more options you have there that are polished and useful and show your range, the more they're going to be willing to kind of stick with you. And I mean, I've had conversations now with some editors that I never knew I'd get to have a conversation with where we just talk about ideas or drafts that I have. And mostly they'll say, you know, that wouldn't work for me. That wouldn't work for me. You know, that sounds fascinating, but we have this already on our list, but we had those conversations and now I have more information and they have a level of understanding of the directions I could go. Um, And I think that's, I don't know for sure. I think that's going to help long-term with career type stuff. And I think that's possible from very early on, but I think we need to make sure we're not narrowing ourselves into just one little thing. I mean, when I started, I thought I was going to write one book and then I was going to get back to my old job. So I really was a little narrow. I really did. I didn't think I was going to do much more than that. I was going to get a book out there so I could say I did it. Thank you very much. And then I was going to go back to physical therapy, which I do miss. Um, But boy, is this way more flexible for me. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I think I think we just have to show range. We have to build relationships and we have to just like absorb that there's going to be downtimes, but the uptimes are out there if we keep pushing for it. And it's hard to let go of some of the things that we've written. Like I've got things in a drawer that it was eight, nine years ago, I wrote them and I'm still hoping to find a moment where they matter and they're useful. It's hard to let go of them, but we do have to, we have to get used to letting go of stuff. I'm going to be, you know, I think it's hard to believe we've been talking for over three quarters of an hour Jeez. Past like that. Um, You're such fun gonna, to talk to. You're good at this. No, I'm, I, I'm also learning. Um, but uh, I'm going to ask you now to pitch one of those um, manuscripts that you have lying in the, uh, in the desk for eight or nine years. Oh, Who God. knows? <laughs> Who knows? Somebody might want it. Yeah. Sorry. Um, okay. Let me do this real quick. Let me look at my little box here. I have a wonderful file on my computer. An Excel is, with rows. It is old picture books. That's what it is. <laughs> All right. This one I gave up on a long time ago. Um, I'm not sure if I can do a quick pitch because it takes me forever to write a pitch. Um, it's I, way I, harder I, than I, writing a book. I'm going to insist. How about... <laughs> Yeah, let me get back into Zoom. Let me be in the Zoom. There we go. Um, So this book is called The Elves and the Goo Maker, and it would be a take on the traditional story of the elves and the shoemaker, um, but with a sort of, and I hate saying this because I'm not a big fan of Dr. Seuss on many levels, but it has a Seussian twist. I don't know how better to put it these days, in which the maker is not making shoes, but making goo. Um, and some elves come to help him when he has a problem with his goo making machines so that we can have goo everywhere and the world can be covered in the lovely slime that we need. Um, and so it is a hysterical take on an old story. And honestly, like, I don't know why I'm still hung up on it. It really isn't. I mean, it's in rhyme and it's in silly, silly rhyme. I, I, um, I, I will I will publish it. Will you? 
Yeah. Here you go. I, a short I, time I, I, ago. I, I, I won't give you any money. Keep going. Keep you won't going. give me any money. Let's publish yeah. this one. It goes a short okay. time ago in the city halloo, there lived a fine goo maker, Jimmy Giroux, his father before him, a goo maker too, had passed on the secrets of all that he knew. He made all the I, goos that you ever have seen for slipper and slides and for grease and machines. I love it. I love it too. And but I, 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 I have a suggestion. I have a website. It's too Seuss is what it is. And I dislike Seuss on many levels. Um, and so I probably shouldn't have been copying Seuss back then, but I was just learning. Um, so I'll tell you what we're going to do. Here's what we're going to do. We have a plan now. You're going to write it under a pseudonym. There you go. How Except we, we just revealed it to the world. So I don't know. No, no, it's okay. Here, I, I'm going to fix it for you. Uh, you're going to go under the pseudonym Howie Cates. <laughs> Pretend that you're a mail writer. Nobody will know. I'll get away with anything. <laughs> Nobody will know. Uh, by the way, this is not going to be on the show. It's <laughs> okay. just, just you and me, Katie. So so um, I'm, I'm having more fun now than I had during the conversation. I had lots of fun. Um, so um, th does it have... A, so I have a website with my wife and another friend in New Jersey with a quarter of a million free eBooks called Our Books, where anybody can publish for free. Now, you're not going to publish this uh, under your name, Katie House, because um, Chronicle will be upset and Essie White and people will say to you, what are you thinking? But I might find you a crazy illustrator who's been spending all her life wanting to illustrate a book about goo. About goo and slime, yes. But I have one question. Does it, does it have a resolution in the end? It depends on which version you look at. Um, <laughs> okay. don't, so don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. We're not going to tell them how you unstick the plot. Okay. And, and we can, we can publish it. this clandestinely and not tell anybody. That's hilarious. But in the meantime, <laughs> you have more serious stuff to do. Uh, I really and, do. I've got a few things to work on right now. But yes, I, I just looked. The version that I was showing you definitely has resolution. And we learn a lesson. So send and it we to say me. it right out loud that we learned a lesson. No, no, no. The lesson should be subverted to the, to the I know. <laughs> I've no, learned it, a lot in the last eight or nine years. No, but you see, it shouldn't. I'm, <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm reading your, 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 your books and um, with a lot of appreciation, I'm saying this is a lady who either didn't assimilate the teachings of the elders or flew in the face of the... Uh, of the convention. And now we have a little bit better understanding. You're someone who has learned the craft very carefully, uh, built Excel sheets, and then did whatever she wanted, which is <laughs> kind of incredible. So there are um, definitely days like that, yes. So Katie House in You got in, me um, pegged. <laughs> yeah. So so in, in summary, uh, may the goo be with you. <laughs> and also with you. Um, <laughs> Thank you, dear. It's um, been wonderful chatting and with we, you. We, yeah, and we'll be in touch. And this is Katie Howes, the incredible author of Woven of the World and so many other books, uh, the wonderful Be a Maker and Racino Kisses and A Poem Grows Within You and many books that are coming out that are secret or semi-secret. And, uh, <laughs> and may the goo be with you. Coming soon. Your... <laughs> coming soon at a secret location that Mel knows about and no one else does. Shh. Ah, Thank we can do so that. Let's, do, let, let's do that. Let's make it a secret book where <laughs> you have to be a goo lover to get the, the <laughs> UR, to get the URL. 
We're we're on a roll here. Ivan. Okay. This put is a recipe Melrose. for slime with yeah. it. It's gonna be fabulous. I've got There's a lot a recipe at the end. Listen. No, but I should put a slime recipe. I've made a lot no. of slime in my days. And 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 of course, there's the, the, the famous story of the guy who invented this uh, slimy goop, goop stuff by accident. By accident. Yes. And then it got um, stuck to the ceiling of my kitchen. But, but that's another story for another day. Another story for another book. Uh, this is uh, Mel Rosenberg, the uh, founder and the host of the Children's Literature Channel for the New Books Network. And I've been speaking to the incredible, really incredible Katie House. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been fabulous. We'll take the goo off. We'll take the goo off stage.